Good morning. It is a blessing, uh, a joy to be here. I'm thankful for you all. Uh, I'm thankful for the work that God is doing in you uh, and that God is doing through you. Um, we're nearing the end of the month of August. Uh, we, a month ago, uh, sought to be more intentional about sowing the seed, uh, about reaching out uh, and we set a goal of, of sowing at least a thousand seeds. We far exceeded that this month. I want to encourage you to, to continue that. Uh, and more than anything, to continue to have the heart of Jesus. Um, as you look out at the world around you, as Jesus looked out at the people around him, he had compassion for them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, uh, sheep in need of a savior. Uh, and so we as well need to have the heart of Jesus. But we do have a special obligation to the sheep of this flock, um, the souls that have joined themselves to this local body. And as we see in Luke 15, the passage that Jared just read for us, uh, if one of those sheep strays, um, we need to make sure that we are actively reaching out in compassion and love to help them. We don't leave sheep behind. We leave the 99 and search for the one. We tend to their wounds. We lift them up in their weakness until we can bring them back to the flock with rejoicing. You know, the scriptures address time and time again the danger of drifting or wandering from the faith. And time and time again, uh, they instruct us on our responsibility in those situations. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, if anyone is caught in any trespass. James chapter 5 and verse 20, if any among you wonders from the truth. Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter. Uh, he also describes that as walking disorderly. And so time and time again, we're going to look at some of those passages more closely. But the Bible is warning us and instructing us about the very real danger of souls, our souls, the souls around us, wandering from the truth, getting caught in trespasses, uh, drifting away into the world. And so what I want us to think about today and discuss today is how do we reflect the heart of Jesus, the heart of God in those situations? What kind of attitude do we need to reflect towards the wayward? What, what kind of approach do we need to take? How can we most effectively help the weak and wayward among us? I think that's a very important thing for us to be thinking about, uh, for us to be praying about. Uh, and so uh, I, I started working on this and I decided we're, we're not going to be able to, to address everything we need to in one lesson. In fact, probably can't in two, but we're going to try to in two lessons. We're going to look at three principles of our attitude and our heart, our approach uh, today. Um, and then Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll look at three other principles. Uh, and I'd encourage you as we consider these things from the scriptures to be actively thinking and praying about how you can apply these in your own work and service uh, within this flock. You know, first of all, uh, I think we see a principle in the scriptures that when it comes to reaching out to the wayward, we first need to be 
proactive. Our responsibility to look out for each other's spiritual well-being doesn't start once somebody has filed a missing persons report. Um, It doesn't start when some hidden sin has finally come out into the open. We need to be looking out for one another's spiritual well-being at all times. Uh, That's part of what it means to be a flock, part of what it means to be a body, uh, a family of God's people. Turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 12 and 13 here. Uh, he's just quoted from the Psalms, uh, calling to our mind uh, the hardness of heart that developed among the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I think in the context here, as, as we go on to read verse 13, we see that what he's saying there isn't just saying, make sure you don't have this heart. Uh, in fact, he's saying, make sure n- none of you, none of those around you have that heart. Be active in exhorting and admonishing and reaching out to those around you that none of you will develop that heart. In my service to the Lord, uh, while certainly, first and foremost, I'm responsible for my own soul, Uh, my own response to the gospel, my own response to to God's grace. Um, I do need to be, the Bible urges me to be looking out for the well-being of my brethren. You know, how am I going to know if my brother or sister is developing an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead them away from God? Well, I'm going to have to be close to them, aren't I? I'm going to have to be a part of their lives. Uh, We're going to have to talk about how we're doing spiritually. (laughs) Um, If I'm ever going to to know if that's happening in my brother or sister and be able to help them with that, um, then we need to be developing close relationships, not on the level of of shared hobbies and interests, but on the level of the spiritual priorities of our lives that bond us together. And how often should I be involved in the spiritual growth and exhortation of my brethren. Well, he says, as long as it is called today. (laughs) Every day, uh, we as members of a local flock, as members of a body, a family, need to be consistently and constantly looking out for the spiritual well-being of one another. Not just once a brother or sister has fallen away from the living God, but all the things that we struggle with and that we face that may pull us in that direction. I need to be active and attending to the things within the heart that may lead my brethren in that direction. And so based on this passage and others as well, my, my spiritual well-being is your business. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, if, if you want to turn over there for a moment. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, we read, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see verse 2 there, bear one another's burdens. In context, what is he talking about? Is, is he talking just about you know, physical struggles and ailments? Certainly that would be included, but in context, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual burdens that we carry. We need to be looking out for one another's spiritual well-being, even to the point of reaching out and seeking to restore those who are caught in trespasses and transgressions. Um, that is the law of Christ. That is what love demands. Yes, in the end, I'm responsible for my own burden. He says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. At the end of the day, uh, it's, it's my choice, it's my decision how I'm going to respond. Um, but, but the one who has uh, the, the heart of God, the one who has the spirit of God, the one who is spiritual, doesn't stop simply with uh, you know, being responsible for my own soul. No, the one who is spiritual is going to be actively looking out and, and, and taking a sense of responsibility for the souls of others around them. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, um, I, I don't know how many times we, we've looked at this passage uh, over uh, the last few years, but, but I think it's an extremely important principle of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. We're told two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The wisdom of God tells us that it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be isolated. We need this kind of support. To isolate ourselves spiritually is to reject the wisdom of God, to reject his plan, his design for his people, for their growth and their encouragement. And it's to put ourselves in serious spiritual danger. As much as we might like to think we can, we cannot pick ourselves up when we've fallen. We cannot keep warm alone. We cannot prevail against the enemy alone. We cannot effectively work for the Lord alone. That's not how he designed us. He designed us to need, first and foremost, him, but also he designed us to need one another. How close does someone have to be to pick you up when you've fallen? Close enough to see that you've fallen. Eventually close enough to, to touch you, right? How close does somebody need to be to keep you warm at night? I'd say that's pretty close, isn't it? How close are the strands of a rope if they're going to strengthen one another? Is that how close we are spiritually with our brethren? That's God's plan. That's God's design. Look with me in James chapter 5 and verse 16. James chapter 5 and verse 16 God commands us, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I don't know if it always registers to us when we read this passage, but this is a command, right? Just as enforcing as every other command within the scriptures. God commands us 
to confess our sins to one another. How, how many people here today just really are not struggling with anything? There's exactly where they need to be spiritually. No, no challenges. No, no places where they're falling. I, if anybody said we were, we'd be lying, right? We, we all live in the flesh. We all uh, live in a broken world. And we all day by day are, are seeking to, to grow, seeking more and more to allow the, the image of God, the image of Christ to develop within us and shine through us. But, but if we recognize that we all have temptations and sins that we are struggling with, uh, we need to make sure that we're talking about those. You know, how many brethren here have you opened up to about the things that you're struggling with spiritually and the areas that you need to grow? If the answer is zero, then you're not obeying this command. There's no way to get around that. If the answer is, well, maybe one person, you know, several months or years ago, I kind of alluded to some of the things that I was struggling with, then we have some work to do. If we want to be who God wants us to be, if we want to grow the way that God wants us to grow, we need to be following his wisdom. We need to be following his plan. And that means that we need to be talking to one another. Uh, now, that may not mean uh, always coming up in front of the entire assembly and, and uh, you know, pouring out every little thing that, that we're dealing with, but it does mean opening up to one another. It does mean reaching out to one another. It does mean having serious conversations with one another about our spiritual growth and our spiritual well-being, being part of one another's lives, not just in a social sense, but in a spiritual sense, sharing that with one another, praying about those things together. That's God's plan for our growth. God does not want us to be each individually fighting our own spiritual battles uh, and then coming together to, uh, you know, celebrate uh, our, our salvation and how well we're doing and then go back to the isolation of our own lives to fight those spiritual battles again. That's not what the church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to be part of one another's lives. And so as a local congregation, we need to set proper expectations. If someone does begin to wander from the flock and drift away from the Lord, if there are some outward indications that maybe they aren't doing really well spiritually, uh, there should be no surprises about how the Lord's church is going to handle that. There should be no surprises about what is expected uh, of each of us as a member of this flock. And that's one reason that, that we've sought when anybody does want to become a member of this flock to sit down and have some serious conversations about that. We, we want to make sure that we understand what that means. Biblically, we understand what is involved in that. What, what's my responsibility to you? What's your responsibility to me? Uh, we, we've aimed to do that. And honestly, I'm not sure that we've, we've done it as well as we need to. We need to make sure that it's very evident that this is what that is supposed to look like. This biblically, this is what being part of a flock, being part of a family is supposed to look like. I think we see this concept in God's communication with his covenant people. You look back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God was very explicit about his expectations for Israel uh, and very explicit about the consequences of not meeting those expectations and the rewards 
of being part of that covenant people. In Deuteronomy 28, we see a very large section of scripture where God goes through and details the blessings and cursings of the covenant. God, before the children of Israel ever enter into the promised land on the east side of the Jordan River, um, God is telling them, this is what I expect of you as my people. And if you follow that, these are the things that you're going to experience. These are the blessings of that. And if you don't, Deuteronomy 28 goes on to describe what's going to happen if they don't follow that. And in fact, he details it even to the extent of talking about a king that they don't even have at this moment, who eventually, when he disobeys, they're going to be led off into captivity. Day one, even before day one, God's people already know exactly what's expected of them and exactly what God is going to do if uh, they don't meet those expectations. Do you think about this, this pattern in Jesus as well? When Jesus talks to people about becoming his disciples, what, what, what does he do? Matthew chapter 10, he says, don't, don't misunderstand. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Listen, following me is going to mean some hardships. It's going to mean some difficulties. It's going to mean in some cases, uh, you're, you're going to have to leave your father and mother behind. If you want to be my disciple, I have to come before father or mother. If you want to be my disciple, it's going to mean taking up your cross and following me. If you want to be my disciple, you know, the, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. If you want to be my disciple, when you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. Jesus sets very clear expectations. And so as we've talked about what God intends for his people as far as being accountable to each other, as far as, as being part of one another's spiritual lives, we, we want to make sure that that's the expectation that we're setting. Uh, from day one, before day one, um, let, let me just set a, a few expectations um, and, and express them, uh, make sure these aren't unexpressed expectations, but these are expressed expectations. Um, that I think are biblical. Number one, as a member of this flock, being in the assembly is not optional. Uh, just in case there, there's any question about it, Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, um, God's expectations of us as his people is that the assembly is his design. It's not something that we came up with. It's not that we thought this would be a really good idea. Uh, no, it's that God tells us that we should not be forsaking the assembly. That's his expectation. Uh, and so certainly there are cases we understand where health or other circumstances may prevent us from being at the assembly. Sometimes travel may lead us to assemble with brethren elsewhere. Uh, but if we're going to be part of a flock, of a body, of a family, um, as God designed it, then uh, you know, the assembly is not just something that, that I take or leave at my convenience. Um, no you have an obligation to these brethren and, and we have an obligation to you. And as we've already discussed from the principles of Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, expect that people will ask you how you're doing spiritually and expect you to answer honestly. I, I don't know that we do that as much or as well as we need to, um, but, but that is the culture that we need to be cultivating, um, that our spiritual lives are out in the open, 
um, that, that we are, are seeking to help one another, um, seeking to, to keep each other accountable, keep each other in the light, keep, help each other grow spiritually. And uh, expect that this flock will not let you drift away into the world or into religious error without fighting for you. Um, we're not going to give up on you. We're not going to leave a sheep behind. That's not the heart of Jesus. And so we're going to do everything that we can. We may do it imperfectly, <laughs> but we're going to strive to do everything that we can to help your eternal soul because that's uh, the heart of Jesus and that's the heart of God. Um, but in addition to being proactive, um, to, to talking about these things, setting those expectations from the very beginning, when it does come to a situation where a sheep is straying from the flock, um, the number one thing that we need to do biblically is be loving and be genuine. First uh, Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. First Peter 4 and verse 8. We're told, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If my brother or sister is wayward and caught in sin, what is the number one thing needed? Earnest, passionate, genuine love. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know, certainly there are a lot of other things that are important. Truth is important. Courage is important. Wisdom, gentleness, patience. But love is the most foundational principle that needs to guide us in how we deal with the weak and wayward brethren. I can pour on the boldness and the courage. I, I can pour on the truth. I can pour on the patience. But none of that is going to have the same effect that showering and immersing one another with the love of the Lord is going to do. We need to recognize that we must not cease to approach one another as friends and brethren. Uh, it's easy when brethren are, are being unfaithful or unresponsive to let emotions of, of disappointment or discouragement get in the way, uh, lead the way that we act. And instead of reaching out in love, we may start reaching out in frustration. Instead of extending a helping hand to lift them up, we, we may be tempted to, to want to grab somebody by the shoulders and, and shake them. But if we do that, it's very easy to start treating people as the problem that needs to be solved. Instead of treating them as a soul that needs healing and that needs restoration and that needs help. Proverbs 27 and verse 6 uh, Again, the Lord's wisdom tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yes, uh, friends sometimes are going to need to do things that may hurt, uh, to wound. But it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, that doesn't mean all wounds are faithful, right? Uh, we, we may very well wound in a way that, that is not a reflection of, of faithfulness and loyal love towards them. And so if, if we are going to have to talk about anything that's difficult, if we are going to have to maybe even rebuke or correct, it needs to be abundantly clear 
first and foremost, that this is coming from a friend. <laughs> that this is coming from somebody who, who genuinely cares, who loves, um, who deeply cares for their soul. Approaching a brother or sister about their sin or unfaithfulness should not be like an employer giving a negative performance review to their employees. Uh, you know, you're causing some problems here. You're stirring up the pot. We just really need to nip that in the bud. That's not the approach. No, the approach is more like a mother inspecting a skin knee. It's more like a father gently sitting down and talking through some act of disobedience with their child. It needs to come from a place of genuine care and love. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. We read, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Uh, Paul had written about those who were walking disorderly in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and now it's reached a point in 2 Thessalonians where in some cases they're going to need to, to break fellowship with that person, um, to withdraw from that person. But even in that situation, what does he say? Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him, warn him as a brother. Even where we need to, to, to reach a point where we say, listen, you're, you're not living in fellowship with God and you can't be in fellowship with these, uh, with these people as we seek to serve the Lord. We, we don't do that in such a way that, you know, we, we're done with them. We, we kind of wash our hands of them. There we go. No, he says we continue to regard him as a friend and a brother. We're, we're, we can't pretend like nothing's wrong. That's not going to help. We need to recognize what's wrong, but do it in such a way that shows that we genuinely love and care, and we're never going to stop genuinely loving and caring about that person. We need the heart of the father in the parable of the prodigal son who's waiting and looking day after day, hoping to see his son return, longing to embrace him and welcome him back home. That's the heart of the father. And that needs to be the heart of his children. And we need to pour out our hearts to the wayward. In all of these principles, God himself is the standard. How does God reach out to the wayward? Turn your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, and as we read this passage, I, I want you to do your best to envision the emotion behind these words. Try to envision the expression on God's face, or, or the tears in his eyes, uh, the agonizing love in his voice. Starting in Hosea chapter 11, in verse 1, God says to his people, When Israel was a child... I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Look down in verse 8. It says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Brother, do you see the heart of the Father? Do you see God's heart? As he reaches out to his wayward people who had turned against him time and time and time again. And yet he doesn't reach out and say, you guys are the worst. (laughs) No, he reaches out and says, I love you. I taught you to walk. I held you in my arms. I can't let you go. I love you too much. You know, we we live in a culture that has kind of trained us to think that, that showing emotion is somehow a sign of weakness. It makes us feel kind of vulnerable. We're, we're too self-conscious and private to let someone see what it is that we're truly feeling inside. Uh, it's just too personal. It, it weakens the facade that we like to, to hide behind and allows people to see our true selves in, in a way that, that we're uncomfortable with. But it's a reflection of the heart of God. God doesn't put up a facade. God God doesn't, you know, hide his emotions and bottle them up from us. No, he pours them out before us. And he lets us see what's going on in his heart. Brethren, as we approach those that we love about the condition of their souls, about their spiritual well-being, we need to pour out our hearts. We need to make it very evident that this is coming from somebody who deeply cares about them in the most important way possible who cares about their eternal soul. I think about Jesus in Matthew 23. As he stands over Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, tells us it was around the same time that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Can you hear the tears in his voice? Brethren, that's the heart that we need to emulate in reaching out to the wayward among us. We we, we don't do any of that that we're talking about because we we want to make sure that, that we run this business really tight and make sure all of its employees are are doing the right thing. You know, it's not about us. It's, it's, it's about souls. It's about hearts. It's about people's eternal relationship with the Lord. That's what we need to care about. And that's what needs to drive us. But an outgrowth of that genuine love uh, needs to show in the way that we approach people. Uh, We needed to approach people with meekness and gentleness as well. We already read Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
This word gentleness comes from the same word translated meek in the Beatitudes, uh, from the same root word. And so when you think about the, the idea of gentleness, the idea of meekness, as he goes on to express this idea of, of humility, recognizing that we ourselves are susceptible to the same uh, dangers, um, our approach should be one of evident tenderness. There should be a certain caution um, about it that comes from a desire not to do any undue harm and a recognition of our own weakness and inadequacy. Uh, the way we speak should make it clear that we are intent on restoration and healing, uh, not simply on getting some rebuke off our chest. The goal is always restoration and healing. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is at the very end of, of two letters that Paul has written to some brethren who had a lot of areas that they needed to grow in, uh, a lot of things that they needed to be rebuked and corrected about. But, but notice what he says here at the end of this letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 7. He says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul says, we... We want you to do the right thing. Why? Not because of how it makes us look. No, we want you to do the right thing because we care about you. It's your restoration that we're praying for. And the authority that God has given him as an apostle, the goal is to build up, not to tear down. Now, there may be times where there, there's some rebuke, there's cor correction that's needed. Things need to be addressed. Paul does that time and time again throughout these letters. But what is his goal? Is to help them be all that God wants them to be. That is always the goal. You know, when the Bible talks about church discipline, about rebuke, correction, or withdrawing fellowship, uh, the goal is always restoration. Now, certainly in some cases there's a second goal that, that we make sure that that leaven doesn't spread to the rest of the, the lump. Um, the, the negative influence that that may have on others. But we never surrender the goal of their restoration. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul says uh, in, in the case of sin, uh, rebellious sin that was being spoken of there, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Even if it reaches a point where we recognize somebody is continuing to live in rebellious sin. They're not living in fellowship with God. And we need to publicly acknowledge, listen, they're not living in fellowship with God. They're living under the rule and domain of Satan. Deliver them over to Satan. I think that's the idea. Uh, even then, the goal is not, well, I'm glad we got that taken care of. 
Now, the goal is that they may be convicted by that. If we just pretend like everything's okay, it's never going to change. We have to recognize the reality of what's happening, that they might be convicted, that they might be restored. That was the goal. That was always the goal. James chapter 5 and verse 20, the very end of James' epistle, he says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brethren, that is the goal. That is always the goal. And so loving rebuke does not wound any more than is absolutely necessary. Turn back to Isaiah 28. We studied this in our Sunday Bible class not too long ago. But, but in all of these things, we're looking to the heart of the Father. We're looking to the heart of God. That's our standard. Well, well notice what Isaiah says about the way that God approaches his people. Isaiah 28, we're going to start reading in verse 24, uses an illustration here. He says, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and immer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This entire passage is spoken of in in imagery, in illustration. Uh, What is he talking about? Well, first he uses this example of the farmer who plows his field. He says, does he plow his field forever? Is that just kind of the goal within itself that you just keep plowing and plowing and plowing and I got really nice soil here? Well, no, that's a means unto an end. He then plants seed, right? Um, he, he, he doesn't just run through and, and till up and, uh, you know, uh, kind of pulverize the soil because he enjoy, enjoys pulverizing it, right? It's for the purpose of blessing that soil, of growth. Of fruitfulness. And in the same way, you know, when, when you thresh dill or cumin, when, when you're taking the chaff away so that you can reveal the grain underneath, he, he says with, with dill and cumin, you don't use a threshing sledge. You don't run over it with your cartwheels. Uh, you, you crush the grain inside. So what do you do? Well, you, you beat it out with a stick and, and there the chaff is going to fall off. Now, in some cases, there's other grain where you do use a threshing sledge, where you do run over it with a cartwheel. Why? Because you want to crush the grain inside? No. No, because that's what's needed to to uncover the grain within. In all of these examples, uh, the force that is being used is being used very intentionally, very precisely for the greatest benefit of that grain, of that field. Brethren, that's our example. He says, uh, the the farmer learns this from God. Uh, He's instructed by the Lord. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. If we're using God's wisdom, that means as we approach other people, we're seeking to make sure that whatever 
forcefulness we use, what, what, whatever correction or rebuke we may need to use, is, is used very thoughtfully, very precisely, in a way that is going to be the greatest blessing to them. That's our goal, uh, to show love, because we genuinely care about, about the, the grain inside. Because <laughs> we genuinely care about the fruitfulness of that soil. And so, brethren, we need to think long and hard. We need to pray long and hard about what amount of, of force, so to speak, uh, we use to address the waywardness of our brethren. Because each soul, each situation is different and may require a different approach. Where the rod wasn't working, perhaps we need to use the, the threshing sledge. Uh, but we need to be very thoughtful, um, very, uh, very loving in the way that we approach those things. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse fourteen. We read Second Thessalonians, where they reach a point that they need to even uh, withdraw from some of those people. But in First Thessalonians, notice what Paul says in chapter five, verse fourteen. He says, "And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak." Be patient with all. What do we do with the, the faint-hearted? Do we, uh, does it say rebuke the faint-hearted? There may be an element of correction that's needed. But he says encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, we, we don't give a harsh rebuke. We, we seek to provide whatever encouragement we can as they struggle with that. Uh, if we're dealing with the weak, we don't simply offer correction and instruction and say, okay, you know what you need to do, now do it. No, we, we offer a helping hand. We do whatever we can to lift them up. And if our brethren are trying to grow, but they're struggling, um, and at times they're stumbling and they're failing, we, we don't simply cut them off. No, we patiently seek to guide and support them through those struggles. So we need God's wisdom. We, we need to pray for God's wisdom. Um, as we seek to help one another, uh, let's make sure that, that, we're not, um, that we're not using a threshing sledge for, for Dylan Kuhn. Let's make sure that, that we're being thoughtful and gentle uh, in every way that we can because we love souls. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Uh, our goal, as we said, is healing. Um, and brethren, uh, this body has some drooping hands, has some weak knees, um, some muscles that are in atrophy and are in danger of, of becoming lame, becoming dislocated. Let's make sure in the way that we approach them, we are paving a straight path for their return, for their restoration, and for their healing. Not approaching them in a way that would further exacerbate their weakness and dislocate them from the body. That's not the goal. You know, there is a time where more decisive action is needed. We may discuss that more uh, in two weeks. We've already seen some of the passages that talk about that. Um, where we may need to withdraw fellowship, deliver one over to Satan in hopes that they might come to their senses and be restored. But rather than that should be the last thing we want to do. 
after all other efforts to restore them with gentleness have failed. So, brethren, these principles that we've talked about today are not theoretical. They are practical principles that we can start applying right here and right now. In a congregation without qualified shepherds, we all share equally in the responsibility to to look out for the well-being of the sheep, to reach out to the wayward. Um, Whether we want to accept that responsibility or not, we have it. You have it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If you have the spirit of God dwelling in you today, you have a responsibility to reach out to the wayward uh, and to seek to help them. Let's reach out proactively. Let's reach out with genuine and earnest love, pouring out our heart the way that God does. Uh, Let's reach out with gentleness and meekness. And maybe you recognize today that that you're the one who is straying. Um, Please know that that we love you. We care about your eternal soul. And we are willing to do whatever it takes to help you find healing and restoration in the Lord. Brethren, that's why we're here. We're we're not here because we're just some Bible book club. And we enjoy coming together and, and, you know, talking about these things. We're here because we want to serve and glorify our creator because he deserves it. We want to grow. We want to be who God wants us to be. We want you to be who God wants you to be. If we can help one another in any way, let's, let's be doing that. If you need to confess your sins, as we talked about in James chapter 5, um, if, if it's of a nature that you need to confess it before these brethren and ask for their prayers, We'll gather together right now and pray for you. Um, That's what God wants us to be doing. Um, If you need to reach out to somebody personally, um, know that I'd I'd love to talk with you and and share with you um, and your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth uh, that we can help one another. How are you going to apply what you saw in the mirror of God's word today? Um, Be thinking about it. Maybe you need to apply it by some action right here and right now. If so, let us help you with that. But let's all respond to the invitation today. If there's any way that we can help you, won't you please make it known by coming to the front as we stand and sing together.